Well, good morning, church. So glad to see you here this morning, and those that are tuning in via the streaming service, we want to welcome you this morning, and uh, we're excited this morning, because, you know, we're about ready to enter to a little season in our church. We do this three times a year, but this is the beginning one, prayer and fasting, starting Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night at 7 p.m. If you can't come to the church, you can join us uh, streaming and uh, the service will be streamed to you as well. We're going to cry out to God. How many recognize that our world is broken? Anybody figure that out yet? How many are beginning to see that? It's really coming unglued in a hurry, right? We can call out to God, and I want you to know that our God is a refuge and an ever-present help in time of trouble. Isn't that great? So we're going to cry out to him, and we're going to have an amazing time together in the next three evenings. It's my privilege today to introduce our guest. He's very familiar with our church family. Pastor Paul Reich uh, has served in our church for eight years, but as well, he's been involved in Clearwater Bible College for over four decades as a student, a teacher, and then the last 12 years as the president of the school. Just recently resigned and turned over that area of responsibility to another member in our Fellowship and uh, Pastor Reich also serves on our Fellowship of Christian Assemblies Eldership Board. And so I'm excited to hear he's got a new adventure going. Our church uh, supports him, and we're happy to hear his voice here. Uh, actually, almost annually, we have him come and speak to our church. So, Paul, would you mind if we'll come and share God's word? Thank you, Pastor Paul. It's a joy to be with you and see your faces from about here up. <laughs> it's a different time of, in the world, isn't it? I'm so glad I can preach without a mask because I would, my glasses would fog up, everything would happen. It would just be, I would be miserable. So it's really nice to not have to wear it uh, when I preach. Uh, I'd like to... Uh, are my slides coming up here? Yeah, there we go. Um, I'm starting a new ministry, just launched it, called Plumline Ministries. I'll share a little bit about, about it as we start today. But uh, it's a whole new venture in my life, a step of faith. Uh, the college just transitioned to our new president. This is uh, Gene Enns and his wife, Marla. Uh, they were students at the college. He worked with me for eight years uh, and a couple years at another time at the college went away and finished some more education and came back, and I'm just thrilled to have him. Here's, here's his family, a uh, large family, and they're just a wonderful, wonderful couple. So I know that you're going to find uh, your relationship with the college be strong still. You're, this church is a faithful supporter of the college. Uh, so Plumline Ministries, what are we about? Our motto, aligning lives to God's word. And that's what we're about, both the living word and the written word. We're going to be talking about that a little bit today. Uh, what are some of the things that we do? Preaching and teaching and training. That's one of the things I'm hoping to be doing. COVID puts a damper on a lot of that. So you have to, it's very limited in some of the options right now, but I'm hoping that'll open up as, as our society opens up. Writing, I've got more than 20 books. Actually, it's getting up, up there quite a bit higher than that. They're on my docket to write. Uh, they're in various stages of development. I do have a sheet out there that's just kind of a summary of some of the books I'm working on, if you want to pick that up. Uh, developing resources. Some of that will be courses, videos. I'm looking at a YouTube channel. I want to do some uh, an, uh, animated whiteboard 
and a number of things uh, to co communicate God's message. So there's some things I'm working on and some family resources as well. Uh, seminars, and I've already got a number of seminars developed. Uh, the Armor of God, that's my, my personal set of armor there that I use when I teach on the Armor of God, and that's something that I'm hoping to travel with as well. Uh, Overcoming Temptation, did that seminar in Detroit last year, and it's, it went over really, really well. That's something I think the church is needing today. I think spiritual warfare and overcoming the pressures of today are two big topics that are important for the church. Sharing God's passion in Christ realities and more. So, so seminars are something that, are, that I'm really looking at doing. Uh, also, uh, a blog. Just launched a new website uh, Friday. That's recent, like that's just the day before yesterday. <laughs> I've been working at it for a while, uh, plumblineministries.org, and there's a blog on there if you want to follow up on some of my writings. I've got my first blog post on there, share a bit of a personal story. And then I'm working on a number of Bible books, uh, in addition to topical books, and I really like visuals, and I'm beginning to, some of these are rough examples of what I'm wanting to do. Uh, this is the double-minded man out of James. He's driven and tossed by the waves. And so this will be, there's about 40 illustrations I have for James that I'm working on, and then other Bible books as well. Uh, here's heavenly wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, it used to be entreated, and so on. And it bears the fruit of righteousness. Uh, and so, but the wisdom from below is earthly. It's even demonic. And it's, it's where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. And so these are visuals that I'm trying to create to communicate God's word. So that's part of what I'm working on as well. Uh, what are, how can you help? You can pray for me. I need prayer. So be sure and do that. You can participate if there's a time when there's an event or, or you would like to come to an event, let me know. Uh, we'd love to have you in something like that or host it and or partnering. Uh, still looking for monthly partners, and there's forms out there if you're interested in that as well. Uh, so in the, in the foyer, there's some brochures. I do apologize. I wasn't able to make it out to the college this week, and I had a local copy shop print them. And they're quite nice, actually, except for the insides are upside down. So <laughs> it fits really well with my message today. So if you want a, uh, I'll call it... Um, if you want a memento <laughs> of what today's message is about, pick one up. Okay. Anyway, uh, so this morning I want to take a look at God's plumb line for life. That's my message this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we come to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would come. Come and speak to us. Lord, we lay our hearts open before you. Search us, O oh God. Know our hearts. See if there's things in our lives that you want to deal with and that you want to change. Help us to come teachable. Give us ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe some of you remember the Mother Goose nursery rhyme. It goes like this. There was a crooked man, and he walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat, which, who, which caught a crooked mouse, and they all lived together in a little crooked house. How many remember that? Okay, kind of dates me a little bit, but if, 
If you're like me and you grew up with Mother Goose, then you would know some of the Mother Goose nursery rhymes. But did you know there was an entire town, believe it or not, that was crooked? It was called Bent Town. It was called Bent Town. It's where all the bent people lived. They, they, they say it all happened years ago when, a, when an evil witch cast a spell on the town. In regards, Bent Town was the oddest town that you ever saw. Everything was crooked. The judge, the judge's bench was crooked. The corner, the street corner posts, uh, light posts were, were, were crooked. Calisthenics were crooked. Coffee pots were crooked. Recipes were crooked. And, and radio aerials were crooked. The streets were crooked. The calendars were crooked. And the government was crooked. <laughs> Which of course means the people were crooked. They were, they, they were very bony for, for their legs and arms kind of stuck out in, in strange angles. And their, their backs were twisted and, and, and bent and, and misshapen and, and their faces were like bent and just permanent scowls like this. And they, and they walked funny, you know, zigzagging and, and bumping into each other. Yeah, their, their demeanor was mean. And so their demeanor was mean and devious. And any man or woman would, with, without, any, without any kind of pretense or provocation, would, would stomp and steal or slander and slobber or shun, shiver and shame uh, his wife or her husband or a neighbor or a fellow citizen. Conversation in Bent Town was devious and indirect. You know, it went something like this. If, if, if you were to, to say, good morning, somebody might reply, is it? Or in a manner of speaking, perhaps, or, or you don't say. And, and if you asked, what time is it? A, per might, a person might answer, time to look out for yourself, pal. Well, that, so that was the best you could expect. The worst would be some sort of insult like, it's time to fix your face ugly. <laughs> or it's way past your bedtime, dummy. Or worse. Such was life in Benttown. Sinister, sad, morose, melancholy. Until the peddler came. That was the best. Uh, no one had ever seen the peddler before. And since the town seldom had visitors for obvious reasons, he was a curiosity. The peddler was a portly fellow. He wore a red flannel shirt. And, and he laughed in such a way that he smiled all over his whole body. He walked beside a cart pulled by a donkey. And suddenly one morning, the donkey, the cart, and the peddler appeared in the twisted, to the twisted alleys of Bent Town, and, and they pulled to a stop at the, the skewed square uh, that was used as a marketplace. Trinkets for sale, yelled the peddler. Trinkets for sale. But nobody bought anything because that wasn't the way in Bent Town. Everyone just simply took what he wanted. 
Soon the whole cart was empty, except for a brown bag and a gray canvas that stretched over the floor of the cart. The peddler, still smiling, turned to the assembly of this bent multitude of people. And he said, dear friends, you've taken everything that I have. Everything that is, except for two items, which have been designed to improve your, uh, your disposition. Yeah, that's what they've been designed to do. And he removed the canvas from the floor of the cart and uncovered the first item and holding it up for everyone to see, it was a full-length mirror. And hanging from the, the top of the mirror, front and center, right down through the middle of it, was a plumb line. And that plumb line showed what was straight and what was upright. Now, the witch had broken all their mirrors long ago before these people were born. And on top of this, none of them had ever seen a plumb line before. So they'd never known the difference between straight and crooked. And so now for the first time, everyone could see himself and realize that he, as well as his neighbors, was crooked. This is very upsetting indeed. So the, the peddler said, the reason your lives are crooked and the reason that everything in your town is crooked is because your hearts are crooked. And if you're willing, there's a great and wise doctor who can heal your crooked heart and he can straighten your crooked ways. And if you want to meet him, just come visit me at the Crooked Inn on the edge of town and I'll introduce you to him. And one by one, people of Benttown went and met the, the, the great doctor and their hearts and their bodies and their dispositions and their practices all began to change. And true to the peddler's word, the, the, the doctor miraculously healed their broken and crooked hearts. Those who came sincerely seeking him, he was there for them. And many made regular appointments with the doctor, asking for his continued help in straightening out their lives, their attitudes, their behaviors. In fact, smaller mirrors with plumb lines were, were handed out to each one. And it helped them to see where their lives needed improvement. And some even sought out the help of those who were further along in their treatments than they were. They were looking to them for some advice as well. And all over town, you never heard such a rending and a cracking and a bending and a racking all your life as people's lives were being changed. And while continuing to work on their own lives, the people set about transforming the town. Everything was being straightened up. The street corner lampposts, the people walked straight and tall, and there were far fewer, uh, far fewer injuries from colliding in with one another. And their devious ways and their mean speech were being replaced with honesty and kindness. And they even went around working, trying to work on straightening up the government. But they were still sad. The reason being is that everyone was feeling guilty for the past. It's all right, cried the peddler. The past is forgiven. Live and forget. Forget and live. And he took his brown paper bag out of his cart, and he took a funny little thing out of his brown bag, and he put the funny little thing into his mouth. 
And he played a happy tune. And the people were enchanted for long ago. The witch had taken away their musical instruments. So the, my claim to fame. <laughs> so the peddler passed out kazoos all over town and everyone uh, made merry until two o'clock in the morning. The town rang with shrieks of laughter and the beat of dancing feet and the witch's spell was broken. Bent town was never the same again. The doctor set up a 24 hour clinic in the center of town and the peddler kept sending people his way. Constant streams of people flowed to see the physician. And mirrors and plumb lines became abundant, and the sounds of cracking and popping were frequently heard as people's lives were being changed. And every day, the joyous sounds of kazoos rose from the lips of the forgiven, especially on Sundays and on Easter. Yes, Bent Town is not the same. Life goes on very differently since the peddler and the great doctor came. It's not yet paradise, but it's closer than we know. Well, I've adapted that story a lot. It's the, the first part of the story is not original with me, and I've made a lot of changes to the last half of the story. But I think the meaning of this story is apparent. It's no secret that we live in a world that is twisted and corrupted by sin. And, and many in our day actually object any objective, uh, they, they reject any objective standard of moral truth. And so everything's relative. They don't have anything, really. There's no mirror with which to evaluate their lives and their behavior and their hearts and their attitudes. And the witches of our day have removed the mirror and plumb line of God's word from every, almost nearly every institution, from uh, most public venues and activities, and so on. We have the pressure of political correctness, and it's resulted in increased censorship of religious beliefs, and, and on and on and on. We, we could talk all about the, the state of affairs in our world. But here's the thing, things have gotten to a place where even many believers question the authority of God's word. You know, over the years, liberal theologians have sought to undermine the historicity of God's word, the historicity of the events in Scripture, the historicity of who Jesus is, and, and they've worked to revise the interpretations of Scripture. And so the plumb line is, you know, if I was to put a, a, a picture up here and I would have it crooked, and, I, and you'd say, hey, that's crooked, and i go, no, it's not. And you go, yeah, it is. No, it's not. So we hang a plumb line that goes, yeah, it's crooked. No, it's not. We just move the plumb line. That's what, exactly what's happening in our world today. People are reinterpreting, and, and the plumb line is not coming out true and clear. And so there's approval of sins that the, the Bible clearly condemns, and that church history with one voice has condemned for the last 2,000 years. And so these compromising voices have infected the church. And many of our young people are facing pressures like never before and they're embracing ideologies and behaviors that are ungodly. And temptations abound, <laughs> and voices approving sin as acceptable are commonplace. And, and with the internet and various things and the, the availability of sin, 
it's, it's damaging the lives, many people's lives. It's only as we come to see our lives in the mirror of God's word and are evaluated by his plumb line, his moral standards, and we let him adjust our lives and the crookedness becomes straight that we come into conformity with his will and our families and eventually our community and our society. But you know what's happening in this world is not new. The prophets of old had to address this time and again. And so we go to Amos chapter 7, 7 to 9. This, uh, and so here's Amos. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people. Israel, I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then it will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now to understand the, this text this morning, I need to give a little bit of background. Uh, Israel, that used to be a united nation after King Solomon was divided into two. The 10 northern tribes became Israel and the two southern tribes became Judah. The 10 northern tribes didn't have a single godly king with perhaps one partial exception, Jehu did some things that were good, but he still counted as an evil king. The two, the two southern tribes had a mixture of good and bad kings. So they each had their kings, they each had their temples, they each had their worship, they each had their own priests, and, and so on. They each had their own prophets. And the 10 northern tribes were the ones that we're going to be dealing with this morning in this passage. Jeroboam II was the ruler at this time. He was a wicked king. Actually, history has quite a bit about him. They know that under his reign, things were prosperous and so on. And so here's Jeroboam. He ruled for 41 years. Things were prosperous. He was successful politically and militarily. And then, but this is what the Bible says about him. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So this is Jeroboam II, and he reigned for 41 years. He, Jeroboam II, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam I. This is the very first king of Israel, and he's the 13th, or, and Jeroboam II is the 13th or 14th king of Israel. And it tells us about Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, which made Israel sin. You see, the first king of Israel, when he set up the temples, he set them up for, gold, for worshiping calves. It was idolatry. And many other gods got introduced as well. And the northern kingdom was known for their idolatry and false worship. And Jeroboam II, 13 dynasties later, or kingdoms later, Baal worship was prominent among many other idols. He, he just kept it on. He kept on with it. And then amidst all the prosperity came a lot of corruption. Immorality abounded and so on. And it's into this setting that we find Amos. Amos was a shepherd. He was a fig tree farmer. So here he is. Amos is a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. And he, he's from Tekoa. And Tekoa is actually located uh, just southeast of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's known for its sheep and shepherding, so is Tekoa. This was a, a region where shepherding was prominent. 
And so Amos was called by God to prophesy. And he shares his personal testimony, actually, in the book of Amos. He says this, as Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He didn't come from some religious, prestigious family. He was a blue-collar worker, and God called him. Now, some, some of us are called into ministry early on, and not all of us are. And there might be some of you today, and you're in a trade, you're in a profession, and you've been feeling the tug of God on your heart, and God's maybe got a call for you into ministry. And you need training, you need preparation, whatever that might be. Here was Amos, a shepherd and a fig tree farmer, and God called him into full-time ministry. And we don't know how God communicated his call to, to, to uh, Amos, but we do know that he called him to go to Israel and to prophesy to an ungodly king in a very wicked time. And we know it's wicked because uh, Amos describes how wicked it was. In fact, Hosea prophesied they overlapped at the same time. Hosea tells a lot about Israel at this time as well. And there's other ones. And so we know how wicked they were. They oppressed the poor. They oppressed the righteous, sexual immorality, temple prostitution. And Amos talks about the, the, a father and son have the same woman at the altar. It was sad. It's, it's very, very um, graphic. Forcing compromise, rejecting the prophets. They told the prophets to shut up. They lived in opulence and, on, and luxury on the backs of the poor. They offered impure sacrifices. They resisted God's discipline. He, he sent drought and plagues and defeat, and they still wouldn't listen to him. There was bribery. There was, uh, there was bribery. There was injustice. There was pride. They didn't grieve over the sins of Israel. There was dishonesty in business. There was a pile of sins. The whole kingdom was crooked, even the corner street lampposts. In their case, they weren't listening to the mirror and the plumb line of God's word. And so Amos calls them to repent. And you'll see this throughout the book. Amos calls them to repent. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. Don't go to Bethel or Gilgal. That was the places of idol worship. Don't go there. Turn from that. And then verse six, seek the Lord that you may live. Or he's gonna break forth like fire. He's gonna come and he's gonna judge. This happened throughout the book. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord of hosts may be gracious to the remnant. Come, repent. So that brings us to our passage in Amos chapter 7. In Amos chapter 7, what we're looking at is the third of five visions. Amos has five visions in a row. The first vision, he sees God sending locusts. And in it, they eat everything. And he sees that God's, he knows the interpretation of that, God's gonna wipe out Israel. And he intercedes and he says, no, God, don't. And God changes his mind. And then he sees the second vision and God sends a fire and fire wipes out everything. And he intercedes and he says, God, no, don't. And God changes his mind. And then in the third vision, 
he sees God holding up a plumb line in the midst of his people, and he understands. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. And then in the, uh, he doesn't intercede. In the fourth vision, he sees a basket of ripe fruit, and the interpretation is they're ripe for judgment. The time is coming. They need to be judged. And then in the fifth vision, he sees God standing beside the altar, and he tells Amos, you need to strike the pillars of the temple. He's going to cause the temple to crash. <laughs> He's going to knock down the religious and political walls. And that's, this is where we find ourselves in the book of Amos, right in the middle of this. And so the first two visions, Amos intercedes, but in this vision, he doesn't. Because he sees God holding up a plumb line against the wall. God, he said, God said, behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will spare them no longer. And the result will be that God will destroy the places of worship and the household of Jeroboam. You know, I think most of us are familiar with plumb lines. You know, a plumb line, by definition, is, is a measuring tool made from a length of cord with a weight attached to the end. It's used to evaluate the verticalness of a structure. The reason a plumb line works is because it's because of gravity. Gravity pulls to the center of the earth. A plumb line has weight. You suspend it by a string, and it pulls it down. No matter where you're at on the earth, it's going to go vertical. So we know how it works. Now, the ancients may not have understood the science that we know today, but they knew how it worked, and they could use it. And so we know that it works because of the law of gravity. It was a common building instrument in, ancient, in the ancient world. They were used by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by the Greeks, and by the Romans. In fact, the earliest plumb bobs were made of stone. Then some began to be made of lead. That actually ties into the Latin, and that's where we get our word plumber and plumbing and plumb bob and all that kind of stuff. And eventually made of bronze or brass or all this stuff that we have today. In fact, even dense wood was used. My dad loved plumb bobs. And there's a whole story behind that. You can read a little bit of it on my blog. But these are some of the plumb bobs that my dad would turn on his wood lathe. He did them different sizes, different woods. Sometimes he'd put a bunch of woods together and, and so on. He really enjoyed doing that. But the plumb bobs used the plumb line to make a variety of measurements. They ended up with a variety of tools. And so for instance, this tool, sometimes you could just hold a plumb line but sometimes it was nice if you had a tool you could put up against the wall like this, then you could tell if, if it wasn't touching that bottom, these two legs that are sticking out are the same size. And if it wasn't touching it, it was maybe leaning this way. If it was hanging on it, it was leaning the other way. And so they developed their own leveling system, even how to develop, even know how to do, to do level, because they took an A-frame, which served as a square, and they could put uh, uh, protractor demarcations across that line. And if the plumb line hung straight down through the middle and they put it on an object, they knew it was level. They did this way back in Egypt. Today, the water level has replaced plumb lines for most things, but it's the same, same concept. They, in fact, on those ones with the protractor, they could measure angles and all sorts of things. They're brilliant. Amos was very familiar with this. You see, plumb lines were used all the time in that day to ensure that a house or a wall 
of a house or a wall around a city was built straight. Because a tipping wall was very dangerous, especially made out of stone. And, and, and if a, the foundation on a wall began to shift, or maybe a second story put too much pressure on it, or it began to deteriorate, and that wall fell, it was dangerous. It wouldn't protect the city. It'd be a place for the enemy to attack and push it over. Even Jesus talks about the Tower of Siloam when it fell and it killed 18 people because walls had to be built right. And so it was especially important to replace or repair walls, walls that were ready to tip. A leaning wall uh, could, could leave a lot of lives in danger. And so God, and here's the issue. God had made a covenant, and this is, this is what the picture is. God had made a covenant with Israel, and he had given them a plumb line. This is how you build your life. You shall not kill. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make or worship idols. You shall not steal or bear false witness. All of these things were happening. The plumb line was not being followed. And so he comes along, and, and, and so it's a plumb line of righteousness. In fact, we see this in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested cornerstone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line, and righteousness, the level is in the New American Standard. Every other modern translation, NIV, ESV, NET, NL, all translate it plumb line. Righteousness, the plumb line. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. You see, God is using these measuring devices as a standard for justice and righteousness. And they're a symbol of that. And when they're in place, it cleans out everything that's bad. It washes away. It, it, it sweeps away the refuge of lives and the waters overflow. There's cleansing. Now, this is prophetic of the New Testament. I lay in Zion a cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important stone of a building. It was worked on extra hard because it had to be perfectly square because they lined the building up with that cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. But he stretches from there the, the line of justice and the plumb line of righteousness. And so it's what is to evaluate our lives, not just in the Old Testament, but there is a standard for us in the New Testament as well. Justice and righteousness are important themes throughout the prophets and an important theme in Amos. You know, in fact, you go through Amos because of their hypocrisy, God says, I'm sick of your worship. Quit bringing your sacrifices. It's just hypocritical. You come and you worship, you do this and that, and then you go live and, and you cheat your neighbors and you, and you commit adultery. You do all these sins and you're just going through the motions. And then he says this, instead, oh, I forgot. Um, did I go back to that already? Ah, I forgot to put it in there. Amos says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I don't want all that stuff. I want justice and righteousness. Let it flow. These themes coming again. And the Hebrew meanings for justice and righteousness both speak of conforming to established standards. 
And righteousness speaks of walking morally, and it's more relational. It's walking in a way that pleases God and treats others right. That's what righteousness is. It's following God's standard to, to, to please him and to treat others right. Justice is a little more judicial in that sense, but it's still conforming to a standard. And it talks about equity in jud- rendering judgment. So decisions are rendered based on standards, not on bias or self-interest or deception or bribes. And so they're both important. That's why, it's, that's why they're both affiliated with the plumb line. But when the nation of Israel was first built, they were built straight and true. He gave them their law, God gave them his law. And the, but you see the plumb line not only was for building correctly, it was a sign of judgment. And the reason it was a sign of judgment because he would hold up the plumb line and say, your wall is crooked. It's tipping. It's dangerously leaning. It's gotta come down. And you'll see this throughout the scriptures. The plumb line speaks of judgment. And that brings us to this passage in Kings. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. You see, because a plumb line was to build right, but when it showed something was wrong, it was time for it to come down. It was time for it to be destroyed. And so Isaiah says this, and he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Why? Because the plumb line showed it had gone too far and now judgment was coming. Now that wall had to be removed. Now it had to come down. Wow, powerful. God is a building inspector. And the standard that's used to correctly build is the same standard that is used to condemn a building. Some of you work in the trades. When a building's not up to code, you either bring it up to code or it gets condemned. And and God will be merciful to them. I mean, if they will repent, he'll renovate their lives. He'll rebuild them. He'll bring them up to code. But God is condemning their building by using the plumb line. And God shows Amos that over time, their hearts and their lives went from straight to crooked. And Israel had become so crooked and corrupt that it was deserving judgment. Wow. And so after Amos intercedes for God to not totally destroy them, now he understands why God has to judge them. And so it goes into verse 9. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. This is the places where all the idol worship was. And then I will raise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, this goes into a lot more detail in the book, but, but the, this place is going to be judged religiously and politically. And politically, that's going to affect their economy, their ju- judicial branch. There's people living in opulence on the backs of the poor, and they're not being given justice in the courts and so on. This is going to happen 40 years later when the Assyrians come in and take them captive. In fact, the Bible, even Amos describes this, they're going to lead you out with meat hooks and with fish hooks. And some say this is symbolic, and maybe it is, as you catch a fish, this is what it's going to be like. You're going to be trapped, and you're going to be led like a, a bull with a ring in its nose. 
But the Assyrians literally did this. The Assyrians with kings. Here's a picture of an Assyrian king. And he's got another king with a hook. He's controlling his mouth. And he's going to blind him with his eyes. This is found in, through archaeology. There's two other kings. They've got rings in their noses. And they're, and they're in line to have the same thing happen. They're going to be blinded. So this is how brutal they were. Now I want to drive this message home. This message, I've been hitting at this all along. This is important for us as believers, especially in this day and age. We live in a crooked world. There's no question about it. Certainly God is concerned with the world, but he's more concerned with his people. How many know the world lives like the world? But God gave his law to his people. He didn't give his law to the whole world. It's his covenant people that he wants to live in a way that reflects his glory, that reflects his character. Now, when the world can come and enter that covenant, then they'll be changed. But we're not going to change them by trying to force God's law on people. That's external conformity. God wants to change us from the inside. You know, Paul didn't try to import, impose morality on a corrupt Roman society. He preached to the church. He said, get your lives right. Get your lives right. To the lost, he preached the gospel. Called them to repentance. Called them to a relationship. But God has a plumb line for the believer. And so here's, here's the plumb line for the believer. And the motto of Plumbline Ministries is aligning lives to God's word. And I'm using that in a twofold sense, to refer both to the written, the, the living word and to the written word. Jesus is the word made flesh. And we're going to look at what it means to follow him. But also, it's the written word, which is a guide for our lives. The teaching of Jesus is recorded in the gospels and in the writings of the apostles. That's the teaching of Jesus. And we're to follow it. See, Christ is, the, he, he is he's a plumb line for us. In fact, the Bible calls, a, call us, calls us time and time again to follow Christ's example. Husbands, in humility, have this mind in you. What mind? Which was also in Christ Jesus. He's the example. He existed like God. He, humbled, he took on the form of certain, made in the likeness of men. You have that same mind. In love, how, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Not your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. He becomes the standard. He's the standard. He's the standard accepting one another as God in Christ has accepted us. Serve one another. If I, your Lord and Savior, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet as I've done it. In obedience, he's an example of separation from the world. As I've separate from the world, so I've called you to be separate from the world. And being sent into the world. Husbands, how are you supposed to love your wives? As Christ loved the church. In forgiveness, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. In suffering, is an example of suffering. In overcoming, and so on. We're called time and time again to Jesus as an example. So more than just following Christ's example, God has predetermined that all believers become conformed to the image of Christ. He's the one that we, God has patterned our lives after. He's going to be the firstborn among many brethren. 
The Bible says that, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. But it hasn't yet appeared what we shall be, but we will be like him when we see him as he is. Paul said to the Galatians, my children with whom I am in labor until Christ be formed in you. We're growing to the fullness of the stature of Christ. You know, uh, from what I've been able to, to determine, the things that I've read, you know, we have inches and feet and so on. It used to be that measuring parts were body parts. So a cubit was the length of your tip of your finger to your elbow, length of your forearm, the span of a hand. Horses are still so many hands high. A foot is a foot, an inch is a knuckle joint. But how many know that when everybody has different sized body parts, it doesn't work out? <laughs> so somewhere along the line, my understanding is they measured the king. And what the king's foot was, that was a foot. What a king's thumb knuckle was, that was an inch or whatever they used to use. Here's the lesson. The measurement for our lives is Jesus. We're growing to the fullness of the stature of Christ. He's the plumb line for our lives. He's the measurement. But more than that, it's the written word. You know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't just teach it. He lives it. But also, the word of God, thy word is truth. In fact, Timothy tells us, all scripture is inspired by God. So the plumb line of God's word, all scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. You see, the word of God is that which teaches us. It's that which reproves us when we're going the wrong direction. It's that which corrects us and says, no, go this way. It's that which trains us in righteousness. And it goes on to say, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. We're called to be doers of the word, not just hearers. The wise man heard the word of God and did it. The foolish man just heard it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. When he commissioned us, he said, teach them to obey, not just to know all that I've commanded. God's, God's word is the plumb line by which we shape our lives, but it's also the plumb line that will judge our lives. Jesus is the one who judges us, and it's going to be his word. In fact, John tells us, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. In fact, Ecclesiastes says this, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Why? For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the word of God is going to be the standard by which we are judged. The same standard that judges you is going to judge me. And it's going to evaluate our lives, our words. We're going to give account for every idle word. It's going to evaluate our actions. Paul says we're going to be judged uh, at the judgment seat of Christ for every deed done in the body, whether good or bad. Our relationships, how have we treated others? Our stewardship, how have we handled our time, treasure, and talent? There's a lot of parables that talk about this one. What about our habits and our morality and our integrity? What, what are we like when no one else is watching? Jesus talks about even when you pray in secret and you give in secret and you, and you fast in secret, God's going to reward you openly. But also sin, which is done in secret, is going to be shouted from the housetops. And so God's going to evaluate our lives. And not only our lives, but our hearts. Wow. 
our hearts as well. The Lord, and there's numerous verses that talk about this. Uh, Samuel says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. There's numerous New Testament passages that talk about this as well. Proverbs even says this. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it uh, who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? In other words, if you don't know something, doesn't God know that in your heart? Doesn't God take that into account when he judges you? Like he's, he's like no other judge because he knows your heart as well as your actions. And he knows sometimes you didn't know any better. And he takes that into account. He, he knows what your motives are. And that's why we need to say, search me, O God. Hebrews talks about the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's piercing as uh, far as the division of soul and spirit with joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word can judge our thoughts and our intentions. So we need to expose our hearts to the teaching of God's word. That's why, why preaching, reading, being in the word, taking classes. You know what? It's only as we change that society is gonna change. Governments change when politicians are changed. Courts are changed when lawyers and judges are changed. Our communities are changed when we change. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. It has to start with us. Uh, this, is, this is happening in us. All of us, at some point, uh, we need to pray this prayer like David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, what's in me? Put your plumb line against my life. Lord, change me because we all have areas of incongruency in our lives. In math, a, a congruent triangles are when they're the same, incongruent or when they're not. But in our lives, when our lives line up to what we believe. Now, I think we need to line up to what God's values and truth and standards are. Sometimes we don't know what that is. But when we don't line up to that, that's incongruent. We fall short. And that needs to be confessed. That needs to be, we need to come to God and say, cleanse me, God. We have two choices. We can either, either cover it or we can confess it. And the Bible says that the one who conceals his sin will not prosper. The one who confesses and renounces it finds mercy. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we need to live in this dynamic where we just continue to say, God, search me, know me, cleanse me. Wash me, change me. And, and eventually my limbs begin to straighten out and my walk gets straight and my life gets straight and there's power to change because the same grace that forgives us is the same grace that enables us. And so the Bible says uh, there's power to change because the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you, both the desire and the ability, the power to change. And it goes on to say, do everything without grumbling and disputing so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The world around us is crooked and it's perverse. But as you allow God to change you, you can be a light in this wicked and perverse, crooked and perverse generation. Amen? So we're gonna 
close here. This is how I want us to pray. Let's, let's stand together as I close in prayer. You see, God has grace to change your heart. His Holy Spirit can come and work in your heart. We can, if we walk in the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. There's power to change. But it comes by saying, Lord, search me and know my heart. Weigh my heart, Lord, in light of your plumb line. Lord, help us to seek you that we might live. Lord, we want to bring correction to our world and we look at the things around us and we go, God, it needs to change, it needs to change. But you say, Lord, I want to start. You want to start with us. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And Lord, we as a church have failed. We've failed to be salt and light. We have not always been conformed to the plumb line of your word. And Lord, there is a time of judgment coming, but God, we pray for us that you will heal our crooked hearts, that we come and we confess our sins and we pray, God, that you would see us as we humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways, that you would heal our land. And Lord, out of the ruin of our lives, Lord, even as Amos ends with this promise, the last three verses, there's gonna be a messianic kingdom under a new king. And you're gonna rebuild the ruins. And it's gonna be a place of abundance. And Lord, the promise is that it will be under a descendant of David. And Lord, we pray that we as your church, that you would rebuild our ruined lives, even as you promise in Amos. You would take the ruin, uh, ruins of our lives and the ruins of our families and the ruins of our city and the ruins of our nation and the ruins of this world and you would build your kingdom, God. Build it out of people whose hearts are healed of crookedness, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you will take this message and you will help us to daily seek you, seek your word, and let you do your work in our hearts and lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.